Howdy, everyone. Welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and I'm joined by Nick Solheim, the COO of American Moment. And uh, it's both of us back in studio, the the dream team. I think it feels it's been like a couple it's, episodes. Yeah, it's it feels like it's been months. Yeah, maybe. I don't know. Uh, time has started to all blend together. I'm, it's a flat I'm, circle. I, as we're taping this, I'm in D.C. for all of 36 hours and then I'm back on the road. So anyway, we're having a good time here as we get towards the end of the year, enjoying all the crazy and wonderful times we've had, uh, especially doing this podcast. Um, thank you guys for listening. I mean, it, it's sort of insane. I think this is going to be episode 43, maybe even 44. I mean, to have done this this consistently uh, week over week um, wouldn't have been possible if no one was listening to it. If it was just 12 of you, two of which are family members, we would not have uh, kept doing it. But instead, it's thousands of you, and we're very, very grateful. Um, as always, go to AmericanMoment.org. You can check out stuff on Amcan and their pieces we're putting up all the time. Uh, be sure to check out um, our events interest form, our summit interest form, and and uh, uh, the interest form for the Fellowship for American Statecraft in 2022. Um all of those things are, are going to be getting bigger and better in uh, year two of American Moments. So we hope that you'll you'll join us for them in whatever way makes sense for you. Um, as we've been plugging for a couple weeks, if you go to AmericanMoment.org slash join, fill it out if you're interested in getting involved right now. Um, there's going to be a lot of opportunities coming up in the new year to go work on Capitol Hill, to go work at an organization here in D.C. Who knows, maybe even to work for us. I don't know. Um the point is, is that if you're looking to get involved or you're already involved and are looking for a community of people who think like the people on the podcast that you're listening to, uh, reach out. Uh, you'll meet with me. You'll meet with Emma, our coalitions manager, and you'll have a jolly old time getting to be part of the American Moment extended family. I would say that we would have a Christmas party for you to come to, but uh, we realize that everyone and their mother does one of those. So we're not doing one. We're probably going to do something else in January uh, and hopefully uh, we'll have more details for you about that soon too. Uh, today we had on someone very special, someone we've been excited about having on for a while now. We had on Patrick Witt, um, who uh, is currently running for Congress in Georgia's 10th Congressional District, um, uh, but before that was the Deputy Chief of Staff at the Office of Personnel Management in the Trump administration. Um, that makes him the second OPM employee that we've had here on Moment of Truth. Andrew Kloster uh, was the previous one. And indeed, him and Andrew are, are good friends and have known each other for years, um, including back when uh, Patrick experienced uh, some of the worst of the American legal system, or rather lack thereof, uh, when he was an undergraduate at Yale and had a bogus Title IX investigation against him. We talk all about that on this episode. Um, he's one of those people who, unfortunately, because we live in a barbarous regime in a lot of cases, especially if you're a young white male, um, that was uh, abused by the Title IX system. And so uh, you can read articles about him online, or you can listen uh, to the episode of Moment of Truth we just did with him. But um, after he went to Yale and was a star quarterback there, um, could have easily been a star quarterback in the NFL, he went instead to Harvard Law School, uh, spent some time in management consulting, and then went to the Trump administration. A very interesting, a very smart guy who also had the courage to serve on President Trump's post-election legal team in Georgia. Now he's running for Congress. Um, we talked about everything from uh, his experience dealing with the worst of what the system is um, in this regime, uh, what the problem of the conservative legal movement are, uh, what he did in the Trump administration, and what we need to do moving forward. Um, I think Patrick's just really cool. I don't know what you thought about him, Nick. 
Uh, sorry, I was thinking of a really funny quip that I was going to say to you after we were recording, so I like wasn't listening to the last half. Oh, thanks. But, uh, I was going to say I was going to say uh, noted noted fellow uh, white privileged man, Sarab Sharma. That's right. Um, <laughs> inclusive of the what is it? What is it that you say that in- the Indo-Aryan diaspora? Yeah, yeah that's right. Yep, yep, um, yeah, that. Yeah. Um, but no, I really enjoyed our episode with Patrick. You know, I think I think the number one emotion that I felt. Throughout this episode, it was just like fury is probably <laughs> the best word. Uh, uh, and and the kind of righteous fury at injustice, you know, at at, at injustices that have taken place, um, you know, against Patrick, but also, uh, you know, the broader injustices uh, perpetrated by our current system on the American people. I mean, Patrick is just full of these stories about how you know, our power and our voice is being taken away by, uh, you know, the current ruling system. So, um, definitely prepare to be red pilled today. Uh, uh, yeah, great episode. Great guy. I think one of the best, one of the best we've done yet. Yeah. As always, um, you know, we have on candidates for office, not because they're candidates for office, but because um, they have interesting perspectives on uh, contemporary issues that we care about here at American Moment. We are a 501c3 nonprofit, so uh, the existence of this episode should not be seen as an endorsement or uh, of Patrick's candidacy or a disendorsement of the opponents in his race. Uh, we take no official stands as an organization on campaigns or elections. Uh, but without further ado, we'll now go to Patrick Witt and uh, hope you guys enjoy the episode. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Patrick. Thank you for having me, guys. Good to be here. We always like to start with how people got to where they are today. You've had an eclectic past, to say the least. Why don't you walk us through how uh, how Patrick Witt became the person he is today? Yeah, so uh, my background is tied up a lot with sports. I grew up in Georgia, uh, played high school football down there for a powerhouse for those listening who uh, are familiar with Georgia. Parkview High School was definitely dominant back in the day. Uh, my brother was the quarterback, then I followed in his footsteps. Uh, both of us went on to play in college. I played three years at Yale and then uh, briefly with the New Orleans Saints. Uh, after that, kind of, uh, you know, went the standard track into the private sector, you know, worked there for a couple of years, back to law school, and uh, then uh, worked again in the private sector at a large consulting firm. But uh, it was, you know, watching what all was happening during the Trump administration, you know, these forces that were aligned against uh, President Trump, uh, you know, the collusion between big media, big government, big business, increasingly at the time, you know, big tech was really becoming the monster that it is today. And uh, that ultimately, you know, I, I made the decision that I, you know, just making a paycheck in the private sector and, and living a good life there was not going to cut it anymore. Uh, so I, I went to serve in the Trump administration, uh, was over at OPM, uh, led the implementation of a lot of the executive orders, which we can get into uh, here in a minute. And uh, then uh, after that, actually, uh, November 3rd, went down back to Georgia and served on the Trump legal team down there. Initially, just as a volunteer, kind of, you know, raised my hand, use me however you, you can uh, use me. And uh, what I saw was a definite void and vacuum there of people that were actually interested in that election integrity fight. Uh, so me, Cleta Mitchell, a number of others down in Georgia formed up the Trump legal team and uh, fought that fight for the past several months, which, you know, ultimately, uh, fast forward to now is kind of the catalyst for why I decided to uh, jump into the race for Congress. That's awesome. Uh, let's let's start at the beginning. Um, 
you had an interesting time in college. Uh, people can find articles about yourself as someone who also has articles about my time in college. I can certainly sympathize, although um, some of the stuff that you went through was um, was much worse than anything I've certainly experienced. Um, you graciously offered to tell a little bit about that story um, uh, for our listeners here. Walk us through kind of what you experienced as an undergrad at Yale. Yeah. So, um, you know, when I was a senior in college, as I mentioned, was a football player, was a three-year starter uh, at the time, had done... So, know, someone messaged me the other day and said that you still hold a lot of the records at Yale. Unfortunately, a lot of them have been beaten in recent yeah. years. There was a guy uh, after me that played for several years, and yeah. so he had the time to, to rack up enough games to knock me off. So yeah. I think I still hold like completions and unfortunately interceptions. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, that's, that's my lasting claim to fame. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, so I was a starting quarterback there had done well, uh, was, you know, highly rated at the time. If you can believe it, I was actually rated higher than Russell Wilson and, uh, Ryan Tannehill and oh my God. Uh, Nick Foles. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so I was, you know, those are two, two of those guys are Super Bowl winning quarterbacks. So it was definitely competing at a high level, uh, had the scouts coming through to practice, you know, everything was going well. Uh, at that time I'd also applied, uh, for several of the scholarships, postgraduate scholarships, uh, the Rhodes scholarship, uh, the Mitchell scholarship. And, uh, I was a finalist for the Rhodes. Uh, was selected and, uh, you know, was feeling like life was pretty good. You know, I had a job lined up upon graduation to go to work for one of the top consulting firms. So everything was going well. And uh, actually on the day that uh, the news broke on campus that I was named a Rhodes Scholar finalist, uh, a girl that I had dated off and on, hadn't spoken to at that point in several months, uh, filed what's called an informal complaint of sexual misconduct against me. Uh, this was uh, a process that was actually set up uh, if you're familiar with the Title IX uh, Dear Colleague letter that was sent uh, to Yale University, I was completely oblivious to this. I was just a college student, you know, living my life and, and uh, you know, trying to succeed in, a, you know, in the classroom and on the, the football field. Uh, well, Yale had responded in creating this system whereby someone could file a complaint against you without any facts, without any fact finding whatsoever. And the standard was basically if what this person is alleging would be substantiated, you know, purely hypothetical, then you get an informal, uh, uh, excuse me, informal complaint of sexual misconduct. So uh, to this day, I don't know the substance of what was alleged against me. I still don't know. I asked the university, I said, can you launch a formal complaint into me so I can find out what this is and clear my name? And I'll never forget, they, they looked me in the eye and they said, there's nothing to clear your name of. This is not a disciplinary proceeding. Mm. Uh, so again, to this day, I don't know what I was accused of, uh, but uh, because of the fact that uh, there was a conflict between my Rhodes Scholarship finalist interview, which would have been down in Atlanta, uh, and the actual Harvard-Yale game, so my final college football game, uh, you know, and at the time I was hoping to play in the NFL, but obviously even if you, you know, got a late round draft pick, there's no guarantee you're ever going to really step on the football field at the time. So uh, I was very... Um, uh, clear on the record. I was not going to skip that football game. I was negotiating with the Rhodes uh, finalist, uh, you know, interviewers that controlled the region that I had applied from the Southeast. And they said, finally, um, we're not going to move your interview. And I said, well, thank you very much. Then I will withdraw my candidacy. Uh, about a month or two, about two or three months after that in the spring, um, I get suddenly a bunch of calls from the New York Times, this reporter there, 
uh, saying, you know, hey, we've we've heard that there was this uh, complaint lodged against you and that you were actually not a finalist and that you had misled everyone like this was big, some big uh, conspiracy that I was leading uh, to, you know, deceive the public uh, into believing a feel good story that never was. They wrote a big expose on me. Um, you know, it was front page news, if you can believe it. You know, a seemingly minor story that didn't deserve that kind of coverage. They smeared me in in every which way, and you know, obviously other media outlets uh, piled on after that. Um, I lost my job offer uh, that I had worked so hard to get. Um, it came out right before the NFL Combine, so instead of you know talking about my uh, you know college football career and the achievements on the field, I spent the entire time talking about that. And as a bubble guy, you know a fourth uh, through seventh round draft pick, hopefully, you know, or maybe a free agent, it completely destroyed any real chances that I had to pursue my childhood dream of playing in the NFL. Um, you know, since that time, I had to basically rebuild my life from scratch, suddenly with this big black mark out there. And to this day, you can still Google me uh, and, and read all about it. Um, you know, I would also encourage people, though, years later, uh, when I was at Harvard Law School, I joined 19 other Harvard Law School professors in denouncing Harvard's uh, consideration at the time of adopting these exact same policies that Yale had adopted that ensnared me in that process. Um, and uh, yeah, so I wrote a big uh, Boston Globe op-ed on that, basically laying out exactly what happened to me, uh, the complete lack of due process rights that I was afforded, no opportunity to defend myself, no opportunity to even hear what I was being accused of or face my accuser for that matter. Um, so I, I can't tell you how many other young men have reached out to me since that time uh, who found my story or followed it at the time when it came out and said, I'm dealing with something similar. What do I do? Uh, these universities have become completely captured uh, you know, by, by the government. They are the enforcers of the social engineering schemes that the government wants them to, uh, to implement. And uh, unfortunately, I was a white male on campus. There was no sympathy for me at the time. Brett Kavanaugh hadn't happened yet. The uh, Rolling Stone article with the, the UVA rape hoax had not happened yet. So I think the environment has changed somewhat. People recognize that there are serious abuses uh, that can happen with this system. But uh, yeah, it, it devastated me. And it's been, uh, you know, a decade of, of rebuilding my life. But obviously, I think my story is ultimately one of triumph and, uh, you know, showing that there is life after cancellation. Uh, and <laughs> it's going to require a lot of hard work, a lot of tough conversations. We're talking about it today. Yeah. It never goes away. Um, but uh, ultimately, we need people who are, you know, uh, living proof of the fact that you can stand against this the onslaught of the cultural Marxist and, and triumph. I think that is the <clears throat> best how I got here answer we have ever had on the show. I was, yeah. Man, I didn't even want to interrupt because I was just such a great, such a great thing. Um, I went back and read your uh, Boston Globe piece uh, yesterday, and I was kind of thinking about a lot of this, uh, you know, Title IX stuff, uh, particularly as it relates to, you know, its implementation at at universities and how it really takes away your right to to face your accuser, you know, to be to be judged, you know, by your peers or or, or by people in the university system. There's no, um, you know, way to provide proof or to be investigated or, or you know, actually officially or that sort of thing. Um, how can we, you know, reform this system? I mean, as someone who's kind of been on the receiving end um, of you know its 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 bad characteristics, how Aside from, you know, universities not implementing it like Harvard, mm -hmm. I mean, how from uh, an administrative state perspective, could we reform this system? 
It's a good question. I don't know if I necessarily have all the answers to it. I, you know, like you, um, you know, my first gut instinct is just like, don't let the universities do this. Basically, what they're doing is appropriating to themselves the criminal justice system because they're not getting the outcomes that they want. Mm -hmm. And uh, instead of having a, a jury of your peers, you know, and a normal process of, of fact-finding, discovery, and opportunity to defend yourself, to face your accuser, uh, you have basically just instituted uh, one-party rule in terms of uh, you know justice that they're going to administer. And oh, surprise, all these people are extremely woke, and you walk in and you're already the enemy in their eyes. So it's mm -hmm. it's a foregone conclusion what uh, conclusion they're going to reach. Um, you know, I, I think it's it's a larger problem of we as uh, people in this country, taxpayers, are funding the implementers of our destruction, the people tearing down our culture, the people who are ultimately, you know, shooting back at us uh, and trying to villainize a, a certain type of people based on your race, based on your gender, based on your political affiliation. We need to stop funding people like that. So why do these universities get all these tax breaks, federal dollars? We're subsidizing student loans, causing inflation of, of uh you know, uh, cost of, of going to school, education to go through the roof because there is no uh, forcing mechanism on the other side that's limiting, uh, you know, there's no real competition. We've yeah. created this caste system, if you will, in this country where people are obsessed with credentials and they will climb over one another, uh, fight tooth and nail to try and get their kids into the best schools. And these schools are ultimately indoctrinating people. They are convincing them that no one could possibly think those crazy conservative thoughts over there. This is how intelligent people think. And kids are influenced by it. You're an 18-year-old. Yeah. You show up. You know, you probably got some of this in your uh, public school, in my case, or private school, especially some of these very woke private schools. And you show up, and then the people who control your grades, you know, who have tremendous authority over the direction of your life, uh, are telling you that this is the way to think. And, you know, you might roll your eyes at it and say, yeah, I'm just kind of performing for the teacher, but uh, it's influencing you whether you know it or not. And so, um, you know, I think the step, step one would absolutely be if you are going to teach these critical race theory concepts, if you are going to set up these, uh, you know, systems of injustice really to go after certain people on campus, Federal dollars gone and any tax breaks that you might be enjoying right now also gone until you actually twist the knife on them. They're going to continue to destroy this country. Yeah, I think that's an interesting, you know, point to make, too, is that, you know, adults now, like young adults in particular, are, are getting their primary means of education and not just actual practical textbook stuff, but like their how to be an adult, like their their moral and like belief system education from these you know, higher education institutions when this is something that used to be done, I mean, 70 to 100 years ago, and then for all of history before that, that was something that was done by the family. You know, that was something that, that people learned at home, that people learned from their parents. And now it seems to me like we've kind of outsourced a lot of that, you know, moral framework um, and, and learning and building that as a young adult uh, to the universities. So I'm, I'm very frustrated by the situation that you're still in, in the, in the, in the, in the fact that you, you know, still can't face your accuser, you know, in, in some kind of, uh, 
you know, legal system and framework within Yale uh, and actually, you know, fight back against that accusation. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm infuriated on your behalf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. someone, a donor that I was actually meeting with recently was asking about my background and I was telling the story of what I went through. And, uh, you know, they had also asked the question earlier about why am I running? And I said something about, you know, hey, my, my service in the Trump administration, I think all of our institutions have been taken over by the left. Uh, these people that are bent on fundamentally transforming the country and their woke image. And later, when I walked through the story of what happened to me in college, they said, that's why you're running, because you care about this kind of crazy injustice mm -hmm. that hurts real people like you, who at the time, I was not a political person. I was a 22-year-old football player just trying to, you know, uh, win the game on Saturday and do well in the classroom the rest of the week. And uh, if you don't fight back against this, if we don't get the right people in government who understand the stakes of the game, there are lives that are being destroyed by these kinds of policies every day. You won't hear about them because the liberal media will not cover these kinds of stories. And, uh, you know, there's not a lot of sympathy for people like you in my case. You know, oh, what's what's the big deal? You know, you're going to some Ivy League mm -hmm. school, you'll be fine. And uh, you don't realize that you are damaging people along the way and uh, you're doing it for political political ends. Yeah, it. It goes to a concept that we think a lot about here at American Moment. I think that a mistake is to create a cult out of youth for its own sake. You see a lot of people who run around on the right who they're young people that are just kind of a fresh coat of paint over the same boomer opinions. But there is a fundamental difference in the experience that a lot of younger conservatives or just ordinary people who've been mugged by reality have than maybe an 80-year-old member of Congress, um, because by the time 80-year-old members of Congress started seeing uh, all these crazy campus stories on Fox News, there had been a decade, decade and a half of people really suffering from the consequence of these policies. I think I found out uh, a couple of years ago uh, that in recent years, campus reform is the single most cited news source on Fox News primetime um, and, and on The Daily Show. So like, Making fun of Wokesters on college campuses is now kind of de rigueur on the right, but there was a window of time, and we talked about this with Andrew Kloster um, as well, uh, where no one was paying attention to mm -hmm. this stuff, and, th and there wasn't the well-oiled machine to publicize these stories um, and, and to make sure that people weren't just getting railroaded in the same way, but... Once you've been smeared, there's nothing you can do. These these intangible, unprovable accusations are now more of an indelible mark on people's character in modern American life than any actual crime is. Yeah. If you steal, if you murder, if you, uh, you know, uh, defraud the public fisc, um, you know, uh, both the right and the left want to uh, reform criminal justice to get you out of jail. And if you defraud the public fisc, well, um, then you either get elected to Congress or you get a bailout from the federal government. And so, you know, the, it's, it's, it's just a it's an entirely barbarous system we've created, um, and I don't have a point there other than to, to complain about it. <laughs> this is just a rant. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> but 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 it goes to I think the next stage in your in your career, which which I found particularly interesting. It um, you did manage to to go to quite a good law school. You went to Harvard Law School and and uh, and started your your legal education there and and um, uh, a career in the in the legal sector. Tell me a little bit about. Um, what you've seen of the conservative legal movement. Um, we're taping this on the Tuesday before Dobbs is supposed mm -hmm. to come down. Um, 
what what has been your assessment over the last, I guess it would have been 10 years of being in and around the conservative legal movement? And, uh, uh, you know, I think you were in Blackstone uh, once upon a time. I mean, you've sort of been part of that entire ecosystem. What do you make of it? Uh, I think it's lacking in in many ways, and uh, I'll address it kind of in two ways. So number one, I think a lot of the people that we are promoting within the conservative legal movement are exactly the wrong kinds of folks. These are the people that uh, went to the fancy prep schools, are members of the country club, and they're always thinking about that next promotion. They're thinking about, oh, I got to you know toe the line. I can't step too far outside of the mainstream because I might not get that clerkship, or I might not get that appointment to the federal bench, or if I'm on the federal bench, I'm thinking about the Supreme Court. So there's this career progression that they're constantly concerned about, which keeps them in the lines. And as conservatives, we're somewhat sympathetic to that. We don't want activist judges. Um, we, you know, we do want uh, them to, you know, decide the cases based on the law, not just to you know, create whole cloth opinions uh, to arrive at the outcome that they want. But at the same time, it's a it's a perversion, I think, of what it means to be a conservative, which is we can objectively look back in time. You mentioned Dobbs, you know, it's something like Roe v. Wade. That was an opinion that was created whole cloth by a liberal activist uh, court at the time. So is it conservative to now conserve the thing that was wrongly decided? A lot of conservatives, race judicata, you know, they would say, yes, you know, we, we are ultimately here. We're institutionalist. And even if the uh, the ship took a wrong turn, you know, the right decision is not to get us back on course, but to ultimately just kind of, you know, preserve the, the ship from tipping over. Let's not make, you know, too aggressive of a turn. So I think that is ultimately a perversion of conservatism overall. And it's a larger discussion I was having with my brother recently about what does it mean to be a conservative? Do you start with the means? Are you in love with the means of, you know, limited government, uh, low taxes, you know, all those things that ultimately we would, I think, like to see, but we're going to sacrifice the ends, which are, you know, what does a good society look like? And we as conservatives, people on the right, I don't think they're really willing. There's not enough people willing, you certainly are, uh, who are willing to say, this is what the good society looks like. And yes, we do feel confident enough to say that, you know, government should be in, you know, uh, trying to promote encouraging this kind of outcome. A lot of conservatives shy away from that. They say, no, you know, it's it's not for us to, uh, to decide this, you know, to tell people how to live their lives. And so it's, I think it's a a combination of a lack of confidence and then also this libertarian streak that really took over the party, I think, you know, in the, the post-Reagan uh, consensus that needs to be broken. Uh, we must stand for something as conservatives and we must have confidence in our position to say, and we're going to do something about it too. Yeah. So we, I remember we talked about this on the show extremely early on. I don't remember what episode number it was that we had our board member, Rachel Bovard on, but it was I think in the first like five or 10. Uh, And we talked a lot about how, you know, conservatives, particularly, you know, in Congress, in the White House and that sort of thing, like to outsource a lot of the hard decision making Mm -hmm. uh, to the courts. They they and you hear this sort of like braying all the time on Twitter now, you know, people are saying, oh, but we got all these judges, you know, like Trump got us all these judges and it's going to be, you know, all the right decisions are going to be made. And uh, I think that we've seen, you know, Several instances, I don't have to go through and, and you know, name all of them, but, uh, you know, of, of the court or certain members of the court, uh, you know, not not going the way uh, that they probably should be or the way that, yeah. uh, you know, Dollar it was, stock. yeah, it was, it was, it was promised yeah. um, or even like, you know, um, 
the uh, vaccine, the college vaccine mandate case in 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 Ohio, you know, you had I, I think some of the conservative members going, you know, and saying that that was fine. Um, so anyway, all that to say, um, I think people are and I'm very encouraged to see people like, you know, you and and, and several other people that we've had on the show, mm-hmm. uh, you know, running because I think it 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 represents a shift in mindset from oh, we're not going to make the tough decisions to, you know, I'm going to throw your compliment to us back at you and say, <laughs> like, you know what you want America to look like and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, you want to pursue that. So talking about the the conservative legal movement moving forward, um, you know, especially with Dobbs coming up, some, some of these other really important court cases coming up, um, you know, if, if, you know, you and several of these other, you know, uh, encouraging folks we see running for Congress make it. What do you guys want the conservative, you know, legal movement to do for you to, to, to kind of support you? Yeah. Um, there's another big problem that I didn't touch on initially in my answer, which is on the conservative side, we have a lot of people who are extremely risk averse and basically want to declare defeat before even fighting the battle. Mm. The left doesn't think this way. They will launch a hundred lawsuits that an objective legal observer would say, you're never going to you know, win one of these. That's a complete misinterpretation of the law. Objectively, this is wrong. Don't file this lawsuit. No, they put resources behind it and they fire shot after shot, knowing that it only takes one of these to slay the dragon. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, they get in front of the right judge and they get what they want. And then what do conservatives do? They flip around and say, well, stare decisis, you know, <laughs> this is uh, you know, something that we must preserve that we, we can't touch. Mm-hmm. It's a bizarre inversion. Again, we somehow find ourselves defending these liberal uh, decisions that were just made because liberals launched an onslaught on our judicial system and finally got, you know, the the one shot to land. Um, I would, you know, in the meantime, until we can start getting people into these law schools, um, you know, that uh, that think the way that we do, I'm not optimistic about that. I think they're going to continue to try and root out uh, mistaken decisions like me <laughs> sitting in front of you. I'm sure they're not too happy about, uh, you know, having having their name attached to me or, or some of these others like a J.D. Vance, for example, coming out of Yale Law School. Um, you need to seek out people who um, probably didn't go to these law schools and have that chip on their shoulder that want to take down this system because they recognize Mm. that it's corrupt. Uh, Give me nine Clarence Thomases on the Supreme Court, please. And while he went to Yale Law School, one of the defining things in his journey that he talks about is I went to the school, but I never felt like I became of that school. I felt very much like an outsider, even in that world. And that was part of my experience, too. And I think J.D., you know, and and Blake and maybe not, you know, to the same extent because Stanford's still a little bit... uh, you know, welcoming to, uh, to, you know, kind of unique thinkers, you know, like a Peter Thiel, for example. But um, you go to these places and you can go one of two paths. You can, you know, basically view these people that came from the top prep schools that grew up in Manhattan, you know, and, and penthouse apartments on Fifth Avenue. And you can either try and emulate them and become one of them. And that's your goal in life. Or you go a different path and you say, I'm not one of those people and I don't ever want to become one of those people. And I think when you have that perspective, that's why it's valuable to have some of these people. Again, we mentioned JD, myself, that went to these schools and saw these people firsthand uh, because you understand their tactics, you understand what they're up to, what their character is like, and you want to fight back against them. And you also have uh, somewhat of an idea of how to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of these people that 
you know, didn't necessarily encounter these these folks before they come to Washington or, uh, you know, in, in some other circles, you know, let's say high up in corporate America, uh, these liberals will run circles around you. They'll make your head spin. And if it's the first time that you're encountering them is in the halls of Congress, you're not necessarily going to know how to defeat them. And they can also flatter you. They, they can also entice you and lead you to believe that they're, you know, they're they're your friend. They're a a uh, good faith negotiator on the other side. When you've seen them up close and personal, you know exactly what they're bent on and they're not your friend. Yeah. What are some of the best examples of that, you think? Oh, gosh. Um, I don't know if I have a great example off the top of my head. I'll just, you know, kind of throw out some anecdotes of, of my time in law school. So um, when I was at Harvard Law School, Donald Trump got elected. And that was a unique experience because I was also there after Ferguson. Um, so, you know, uh, quite a swing, like you know, one, one to ago. another, it does, <laughs> but, um, you know, shortly after Ferguson, all these students, uh, engaged in die-ins on campus. They were blocking your path to go to, uh, class. Um, they took over our main student hangout area and renamed the, the hall from Wasserstein, the guy that gave a bunch of, bunch of money to name the place to Belinda Hall. I'm not even sure what the reference was, <laughs> but to, uh, some, uh, black woman in, in history. Um, and you know, these radical kids, they view law school, not so much as, as an opportunity to learn, you know, some, some larger concepts, you know, like equal justice, how do we, you know, uphold the rule of law and these, these kind of weighty ideas. And instead they view it as how do we use this vessel, the criminal justice system, you know, civil law for that matter, to achieve our ends. They, they are, you know, steeped in activism uh, while in law school. And the very people who are being held up in our, our justice system as the, you know, the people who are supposed to administer justice blindly, for example, are instead learning that, no, that's a complete lie. This is a myth. We need to administer justice, not blindly at all, but based on racial factors, gender factors. I mean, critical theory at the end of the day came out of law schools. And it's basically the idea that you can't possibly judge someone, a jury of 12 peers. They're not really their peers unless they look like them, unless they have the same gender, same mm -hmm. experiences, you name it. And so you get this really relativist view of the law. And that's what you're seeing right now is, is wokeness and social justice is their North Star, not a, a you know aspiring to um, you know, some colorblind equal administration of justice, which ultimately is, uh, you know, the the goal and uh, the objective for for our justice system. Yeah, this this dichotomy is, I think, perfect. Right on one side, you have the political left that sees law schools as the equivalent of you know a firearm training course, mm -hmm. um, but but for civil society, you know, we're here to learn and get our credential to be able to use this weapon against the rest of society. Um, and meanwhile, on the right, uh, the goal of what it seems like most legal conservatives is to basically preserve the victories that liberalism got last year. Mm -hmm. um, I remember <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I did an event and supported Judge Kavanaugh during the confirmation hearings um, on UT campus when I was an undergrad there. And I remember there was this one kid, um, a sophomore, who uh, was a member of the young conservative club that I have, you know, came to a good deal of meetings. And he said, oh, so great. Support everything you guys are doing. But um, fortunately, I don't think I can join. I'm worried it would affect my confirmation hearing someday. This was a sophomore in undergrad. <laughs> and so he had projected out that he was going to finish undergrad. He was going to get the grades that he needed. He was going to maybe take two years off because that's not the cool thing to do. Go to law school and then go be confirmed as an Article Three judge. And so not only 
Do we have a Congress that is utterly effete and outsources all of its responsibility to the court, but we have a set of preconditions and incentives uh, for the people we appoint to the court that makes them the most risk averse and cowardly people mm-hmm. possible. Yeah. And so we have no recourse. Um, we don't have, you know, uh, anything resembling activist judges that would actually put a stop to some of the steamrolling that liberals will do. And we certainly don't have members of Congress that will call out the excesses of the court. Um, and so that then takes us to the one uh, thing where it seems like we can and did uh, for a brief period actually use, which was the presidency. Mm -hmm. Um, Walk us through how you ended up in the Trump administration and what exactly you did there, because uh, you were involved in my favorite office in the entire Trump (laughs) administration uh, during my favorite year of the entire Trump administration. So uh, tell us tell us how you ended up there. Yeah. So let me let me go back to something you said in your question first, and I'll get to my experience in the Trump administration. But, you know, ultimately what you're describing is people rationally responding to the incentives and the system that we've set up. This is a pipeline that, you know, tells kids get good grades in school, do essentially do whatever your teacher tells you. And if they're spouting some woke stuff uh, or if the college application says, what have you done to advance diversity, equity and inclusion in your school? People will start responding to that because this is the pipeline to success in the country. And then when they get in you know, law school and they graduate, they're thinking the exact same things, which is my decisions are going to be influenced by what I want to achieve, which is ultimately a good thing. But the incentives are all wrong because in order to achieve the things that they think they want to achieve, which is some title, some fancy role, uh, they have to play the woke game to get there. Um, So I I think a a question we really need to to wrestle with on the right is how do we change the incentives? Because one of the things is, you know, hey, we can order the society the right way. And, you know, instead of, uh, you know, that question on your application being, hey, what have you done to advance uh, DEI in your school? It's something like, Hey, what have you done to actually, you know, help people in your community or how active are you in in your church, you know, uh, community, something like that? You know, people would, again, respond to that and then start ordering their life uh, towards that. I don't see that happening uh, in in the near term. That's a longer term goal. That's ultimately where we want to go. But what we need to do is start to, I think, diminish some of the value of that pipeline. Again, the obsession with college degrees, with credentials, um, that leads people into this pipeline of, I will pay whatever it takes to get into you know, this top school. It's going to saddle me with hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt, and then I'm going to go work in some Wall Street bank because that is the good life in my mind. We need to start you know, taking things away. One of the things that we did in the administration at OPM, kind of circling back to your, your main question, sorry for the tangent, is uh, start to remove a lot of the requirements for college degrees for these roles. Because first of all, uh, you know, they just don't require them. And second of all, a lot of these people coming out of these colleges with these degrees, their brains have been turned to mush by these crazy professors and these crazy ideas. They haven't learned anything. They've actually probably killed off a bunch of gray matter in their brain. <laughs> <laughs> stuffing it with garbage. Um, so we, we need to just you know think about how we remove and, and decrease the, the obsession and the emphasis that we put on uh, this credentialism that creates this pipeline of people uh, into you know creating these automatons basically that just get stamped coming off the assembly line. Uh, For no reason to, yeah. right? Like the, the we, we obviously care deeply about the concept you just laid out, and it's one of the coolest things that the, pres- uh, the president did was uh, reforming these civil service requirements to remove four-year college degrees. It was excellent. Um, 
But there's no college in America, with the exception of maybe Hillsdale, that teaches conservative governance. Mm -hmm. So even if you want to take the narrowest case here, which is, you know, creating Hill staffers and junior bureaucrats in the federal government, why on earth would we require a four-year college degree when there is no relationship between what a Republican or conservative president demands of that person and what they would have learned in college? And then even on the most basic, like mechanical terms, you can't even really confidently say that a kid will come out of college these days knowing how to write. And so what are we requiring this for? I mean, I've seen uh, the vast majority of college students write worse at the end of college than they do at the uh, end of high school, because at least there is some standardization in high schools that makes you have to be able to string a sentence together with proper grammar. In colleges, you just have to, you know, be enough of a tearjerker screaming about how oppressed you've been your entire life. I mean, just the narrow institution of the um, like personal statement um, that colleges have is, I think, one of the most destructive forces in American life because it forces every young person to, even if they've lived an idyllic lifestyle as a child, find some way to show why they've been a victim. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And and so we're priming very young, very unformed people to say that the primary way other than hard work that you get ahead in the society is by self-victimization. And even if they kind of go along to get along and just, you know, paint on the dotted lines because that's what they have to get do to get into colleges, at some point, there's only so much cognitive dissonance, especially a young person can handle. They'll just assimilate completely into that mindset and they'll chase it like a high. Uh, They'll find ever newer ways to self-victimize. It's part of the reason why I think they have this insane epidemic where something like 40% of women under the age of 35, especially white women, identify as not straight because they have to find something that makes them different because we've created a society where it's it's evil and wrong to be a normal person. Yeah, or the the story recently that a bunch of uh, white people are actually checking the box that they're minorities on their college <laughs> applications. You know, how does an Ibram X Kendi, uh, you know, square that circle when it comes to his theory that you know the the system is structurally racist against minorities when white people are going out of their way to try and convince colleges and other institutions uh, that really control our country and that we aspire to to belong to uh, that we're actually not white. Uh, well, if if you believe in like. Kendi's theory, which obviously none of us do, but if you do, that also makes that the most white thing ever, like <laughs> appropriating being a minority. Yeah. Like, yeah, I'm just going to be extra white and yeah. also be a minority. Yeah. Um, I think I think too the 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 you know interesting thing that Sarab said is, uh, you know, was talking about forty uh, percent of women now you know identify as like some other sexual orientation. I think it's something like in in you know. Uh, 12th grade or, or younger, um, I think it's over like 15% of kids identify as trans now. It's like, like, that's crazy. Bad idea. That is, yeah, that is, that is like, but, uh, we are setting yeah. ourselves up for some, for some huge demographic yeah. consequences. Uh, Again, people you know, responding to incentives, though. If everyone's out there celebrating this kind of lifestyle yeah. and this, you know, kind of identity, if you will, then, and it's thrown in kids' faces and their cartoons and what they consume and certainly what their teachers teach them at school, then naturally people respond to incentives. They see that, hey, if I do this, I'm going to get that reward. Well, suddenly I'm trans or suddenly I'm gay. Um, I almost liken it to, this is, you know, probably not a great analogy, but uh, when I was growing up playing football, um, there was an epidemic of ACL tears. Like 
every game you would see at least one person tear their ACL. It was bizarre. And it was talked about all the time. And it was almost like it was lodged in people's heads, you know, that someone must go down with an ACL tear. You don't really see it as often anymore. And instead, what do you see on the football field? Concussions. And what are we all talking about all the time? Concussions. There's something about like when you keep an idea front and center and you just, you know, Mm. you know, bash people over the head with something, they, they almost naturally gravitate to it. It's maybe it's a confirmation bias, you know, or something, but, um, I I think uh, there's something to that, which is again, if it's all in the news, if it's all we talk about all the time is gender identity and, uh, sexuality and this and that, well, then it's no surprise when it starts showing up in young people who are very influenced by these ideas. Yeah. I've, I've read about that, you know, speaking of things that, uh, none of us probably learned about in college, uh, you know, these, like fear, I think they were called like fear epidemics or something where people would, you know, be told, oh yeah, there was a, there was a gas leak 10 miles, like as a science experiment, people would say there was a gas leak 10 miles away from you. Here are the symptoms. And like three quarters of the town would get sick when in reality, nothing had happened. And it was because people thought that there was something that far away and they thought they had those, you know, symptoms. Um, so I actually think that's a great analogy because that's like, we live in a fear-based society now. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of, that's kind of what, you know, if 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 I don't stand out or if I don't, you know, matter, what's the what, what's the point of it all? If yeah. I don't matter measure measured against this new like American value system. Yeah. I mean, what why don't I just end it all? Yeah, it's know? almost a, a Weaver-esque idea. You know, ideas have consequences. The mind has an extremely powerful effect on the material world. You know, people uh, either, you know, take actions based on what's in their head, um, you know, or it's just kind of like manifest itself through through what we see of, of people uh, making decisions based on these ideas that are put in their heads. It's, uh, you know, it's not quite inception because it's quite obvious, you know, where these ideas yeah. are coming from and that uh, it's intentionally being forced on people. But uh Again, I go back to we as conservatives need to think about, you know, what policy decisions are we taking? What actions are we taking to change these incentives? Because the problem, I think, to, to people that have been officially red pilled enough is pretty clear. We know what the problems are. We know where these centers of power are that are ultimately, uh, you know, trying to chip away and tear down our society. I always refer to these people as they're anti-civilizationists. It's not enough to just go out there and say, oh, they're liberals, you know, they're Democrats, oh, the socialists, you know, these uh, scary words that, uh, mm-hmm. you know, conservatism Inc. Uh, throws out there. But these people are tearing down civilization itself. And we on the right need to stand for civilization and those large ideas that our country was founded upon and then change the incentives to, you know, drive people to want those good things. Absolutely. Um, the dumbest line in politics that's repeated ad nauseum is that, you know, culture is downstream for, or politics is downstream from culture. Politics is downstream from culture. And it's usually uh, used to preface an argument for why we should do nothing mm-hmm. um, in a certain circumstance. Uh, you do not believe in doing yeah. nothing. And you, in fact, did things uh, in the Trump Yeah, we'll leave it to a, a generation of Hollywood producers to come out, you know, uh, putting in good conservative ideas in their movies. It's not yeah. going to happen. No, yeah. It's, it's just yeah. ridiculous. It's not. And, and like the best thing that they can, like, like bring to bear is like God's not dead for and like okay like that's 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 fine I guess but it's not <laughs> not not really moving the needle much um so so back to the the Trump administration how'd you end up there what was the process of you getting uh getting in and and what did you do while you were serving yeah sorry uh we, we went no tangent, quite a tangent this I is what the long form is for we yeah. can do many tangents um so 
I, I had a couple friends that were working in the administration. Uh, a friend of mine was deputy chief of staff over at uh, HUD under Ben Carson. And uh, I had another friend that actually just joined shortly before I did. She was the executive secretary uh, at OPM. And so um, it was through them. I was asking about, hey, what's your experience been like so far? I'm very interested in serving. Uh, would there be any opportunities? And, uh, you know, lo and behold, uh, I was up in D.C. actually doing uh, some work at the time for my consulting firm was up here on a project. And uh, Peggy, the woman who was working at OPM, said, you know, why don't you just come in and meet some people? And uh, so I showed up. I'm glad I wore a suit because I walked into the room and it was very much a job interview. Uh, I had no idea that that was, you know, even going to be uh, something that we discussed. But, um, you know, they said, uh, hey, we're interested in you. Tell us a little bit more about your background. Uh, you know, what does what does President Trump's presidency mean to you? What are the policies that uh, you're you're most excited about that he's achieved? The magic and, questions, as Andrew Kloster exactly. Told us. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll get to Kloster here in a minute because that's this was step one. This yeah. was kind of the folks over at OPM at the agency itself uh, asking me these questions, and uh, they they offered me the role of deputy chief of staff, and I was you know flattered, humbled. Uh, you know, I was like, wow, that's it's a large agency. You know, twenty five hundred people, two point three billion dollar annual budget. You know, this is this is quite a bit of uh, responsibility here. And this is also an agency that initially I didn't quite know as much about, but I certainly learned that, uh, you know, in some presidencies, OPM can be a rather dormant agency. Yeah, the bureaucracy is a good thing. They're all Democrats and they're all, you know, uh, you know, without even giving them direction, they're just achieving the ends of the, you know, the, the administrative state uh, towards this woke end. Um, but under a Republican president, this is really the, the center that needs to be um, you know, full of life and energetic in tearing down that administrative state. So that was step one. I passed that interview and then I went over and met with the guys from PPO, Johnny McEntee, James Bacon, Kloster, who you mentioned. And I'll never forget Kloster, uh, you know, asked me that same question. You know, what are the policies that you're most excited about um, that uh, you think, you know, are, are the biggest achievements? And we talked about that. And um, he, he said to me at the end of the interview when you know it was obvious that I'd passed and they were going to be officially offering me a job in the administration, he said, one of the things we look for is we don't want to bring anyone to D.C. who hasn't been mugged by the system, the government before. And where we started this conversation, what I went through as an undergrad um, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, in corporate America, um, that kind of, you know, very stay inside the box. Uh, you know, let's not do anything that's, uh, you know, um, risky. Um, that is a big strike against you. And you have to explain that away for, for Kloster and the guys at PPO, they were looking for people like that, that had that view of, Hey, there's something really wrong with this system. And not only do I recognize it, it's wronged me personally before. And I think that kind of attitude going into the administration was critical because, you're you're not tempted by the siren song of D.C., the, uh, you know, permanent bureaucratic state, the job offers, the lucrative, you know, things that they hold in front of you to try and keep you on that path that they want you on. You're like, no, I'm, I'm here to break things up. I'm here to shake up that system. And uh, this kind of goes to a larger point of, you know, right now people talk about, well, Trumpism was great. The policies were great. But can we do it without Trump? You know, Trump is too uh, controversial. The tweets, you know, he polarizes people. And the thing I say back to that is 
If it's not Trump, you better find someone else who is willing to be a battering ram against that system because it requires blunt force trauma to break it up. If you think you're going to go in there and sweet talk these people into ceding their power and, and loosening their grip on, on our country and our you know, culture and our society, you're out of your mind. You are going to have to fight this head on, and it requires someone who is willing to take on that oncoming fire. Um, so, you know, my role in the administration over at OPM, um, you know, kind of getting back again, long-winded answer. Um, we were really where the rhetoric meets the road on Drain the Swamp. Uh, we were the federal HR policy wing for all of the 2.2 million uh, plus people that work in the government. And we were driving the policies of how do you actually translate Drain the Swamp into real policies. A couple of those, one that we mentioned earlier is, uh, you know, removing the requirements for four-year college degrees for a lot of these positions, um, you know, shining a light on how much uh, taxpayers were funding union time for all these people in the federal government. These public sector unions are unbelievable. We would show up to work every day and there were giant posters as we walked to our offices talking about how, you know, Donald Trump wants to take away, you know, your pension. Donald Trump wants to do this and that. This is our office and the union is allowed to basically advertise that we are the enemy. We are these evil people in our own building. It's unbelievable. And it just goes to show that the permanent bureaucratic state views themselves as the government and you're just passing through. You know, you're okay. The, the red team's here and they're going to be here for a couple of years. But uh, my former boss in the administration would call it, you know, they're the B team. They'll be here before you get here and they'll be there after you leave. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's the problem. We have allowed this uh, Leviathan to be created and all these positions, the career bureaucrats have changed from. Uh, you know, open positions, basically political appointees would hold them to career reserved positions. And they just, you know, after every administration, the number of positions that actually you put political appointees in who represent the will of the American people goes down. I always use this stat when I tell people I was oblivious to this fact. Um, when you elect a president, you change three to 4,000 jobs in the federal government. That's on a denominator of, as we just said, 2.2 plus million people. You're affecting less than 1% of the government when you vote in your president. And that's not to say that things don't change. They definitely do. As we saw, you know, from, from Trump to Biden, you know, things are materially different. Leadership at the top matters. But nonetheless, you know, the real brass tacks of, you know, rubber meets the road. How do we change these things, especially within the different agencies, not just, you know, executive orders from the White House? You have to empower people uh, to, to change those things. The people that are, you know, deputy chiefs of staff or other, you know, kind of like middle management, if you will, in government need real power. And they also need to be positions that reflect the will of the American people. Um, you know, these bureaucrats, they're savvy. They know where all the landmines are. They know how to make you step on one. And so people are afraid of that. You know, there's just more of them than there are of you. So, you know, they, they outnumber you and they know all the games to play. Uh, memos will show up on your desk at 4.58 p.m. Hey, congressional deadline, got to get this signed, you know, by 5 p.m. Let's get this out the door. No, no, it's not. It's not important. There's nothing really in here. It's just a small little thing, you know, that we do every year uh, or things will leave the building without you even knowing that they left the building, because over time, under some Democratic president, the agency had delegated all this authority down. And so these people actually have the authority under the delegation 
to sign these policies and to let them walk the door. And I can't, you know, I can't think of a great example right now, but we would find out in the newspaper sometimes things that came out of our agency. And we're like, what? Like, we didn't sign that. Did we ever see that? And the answer is no, uh, because we didn't know to even look for it. So um, I'll, I'll close with this point. Um, when, if, you know, we, we get a Republican president back in there, they need to put people in place who understand how the game is played at the administrative level. I think we on the right policy, or I'm sorry, procedurally are very deficient. Um, and to an extent that's kind of expected because we're not the bureaucrat class. We don't really understand the process quite as well, but you have to come in and understand how that game is played immediately review the delegations, for example, uh, ask the bureaucrats, you know, hey, this position that's uh, reserved for careers, has it always been that way? Or did it change basically right before we came in the door when the Democrats were in there because they're trying to block any kind of Republican appointee from going in? Um, so anyway, that's a long point to say that the administrative state is awful and needs to be deconstructed, uh, you know, root and branch. And, uh, you know, OPM is really a main driver of that. I was proud to serve under the president in leading that charge. And uh, on the Hill, uh, we will continue that work. Well, if our uh, listeners weren't red pilled on, on the administrative state and on personnel, they definitely are now. <laughs> what? So I, I think you made a pretty compelling case for what, um, how how the administrative state and these structures are used to undermine the interests of conservatives and Republican presidents. What's the other side of the equation? What's the best case scenario for what an energetic and interested conservative president could use these structures for if they were so inclined as opposed to just going along and getting along? Yeah, I mean, exactly the opposite what the Democrats have done. Get your people in place that are aligned with the mission and use the levers of power to, again, going back to that, what does the good society look like? Yeah, your policy should reflect that. It was one of the funniest things, uh, you know, you'd see these news stories about the Trump administration when President Trump would appoint someone to, to some agency and they would say, oh, you know, Trump's putting loyalists throughout the different agencies. And I'm like, yeah. As opposed to the other people who <laughs> like, are not loyalists. <laughs> are you supposed to appoint people that dislike you and don't agree with your policies? It yeah. was just ridiculous, but uh, it, you know, that's typical media garbage. Um, but no, you need to find people who are properly aligned with the mission because as we learned in the early years of the Trump administration, you get the Miles Taylors in there that uh, are active, Trump administration yeah, official exactly. Miles Taylor. <laughs> actively undermining the agenda. Yeah. And so, um, you know, what PPO did under Johnny McEntee, James Bacon, Closter, as we mentioned, was critical and should be um, the standard. You know, you need to properly vet people because, uh, again, there's way too many swamp, swamp creatures out there that would love to come in and work in the executive branch uh, for a little gold star on their, their resume. But they're not interested in actually getting anything done. You need people who are there to roll up their sleeves, get to work and uh, recognize that the agency inside of which they work uh, is populated with a bunch of people who are there to work against you, to thwart what you are trying to do. And so you have to just, you know, be prepared for battle um, yeah. when you go work in the executive branch. Um, a family friend asked me this question a couple of days ago, and I'd be very curious to hear your answer. Um, tell me the profile um, differences and kind of what the, the, the platonic Democratic presidential appointee is like where they come from, what motivates them, what they do after versus um, the platonic Republican political appointee, you know, the same sort of contours. 
little bit hard to describe that because my experience in the Trump admin, that was not a standard uh, presidency. I think um, I'll answer it with like the, you know, again, the platonic, you know, like standard ideal of this would be a Democrat uh, appointee comes in. Uh, they have all the credentials. You know, they probably have, you know, three degrees from Ivy League schools and uh, they're they're tripping over one another to apply to these different agencies. And they come in and they're just little minions and they, they get to work right away. They're activist types. And uh, they're they're obsessed with politics and have been for a very long time. Um, there was this amazing picture that um, some of the staffers at DHS posted a couple of days ago, wishing an MSNBC anchor happy birthday while they were all wearing their masks. It said like "Happy birthday" on the whiteboard, oh, yeah. and it's yeah. like, oh, they just they feel comfortable doing that, right? <laughs> yeah, no, it's it's yeah. totally normal. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they they come in, they're highly credentialed, you know, they went to all the right schools and, uh, you know, they get hired in and it's, I would imagine, a very competitive process, you know, for them because there are so many of them out there that want to be in that world and want to be, uh, you know, politicos. Um, after the administration, they go on to great jobs over at their, you know, corporate uh, friends in the government relations department at Uber and, and Google and such. So it's a pretty lucrative path for them. Uh, I would say in a standard Republican administration, like a George Bush administration, um, it looks somewhat similar. You get, uh, you know, maybe a little bit more geographically diverse uh, application pool, um, but it's going to be very much that patronage system of, you know, you know, George Bush's cousin or his, you know, nephew or something like that. And so you get brought in um, and you're there to, to be, a, you know, like a, a little caretaker uh, at the different agencies. You're not really there to shake anything up. They're not bringing in any, you know, rogue agents or uh, change makers. And they come in for a number of years, you know, they get uh, to put that on their resume and then they move on to, you know, some lobbying firm or some other, you know, corporate entity, but more a, a right-leaning one. Um, you know, they might go work at Walmart or one of the oil companies afterwards. Um, the Trump administration was unique because you initially it was somewhat similar to the staffing of a George Bush administration. And you got people that were either, um, you know, not really interested in getting a lot done, kind of that same, you know, hey, we're just kind of here to exist for a couple of years. I'm going to put this credential on my resume and then I'm going to move on. Uh, or you had people who thought of themselves as these uh, defenders of liberty, defenders of the, you know, uh, democracy like a Miles Taylor who uh, were there to basically ensure that uh, Donald Trump didn't destroy the country. Um, it wasn't until McEntee really came in and took over PPO that you started to get the people that the American people thought they were voting in when they voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Those folks that had the right ideas, that understood the problem, and that were willing to uh, you know, take on this really monumental task without, you know, with a lot of risk associated with it. You know, this was... A challenging thing for a lot of people in their careers, I would say, you know, I have a number of friends that served in the administration who have not been able to find jobs afterwards. That's unheard of when you come out of the executive branch with some of the titles that they do and the experience that they had. Um, but this town, D.C., the swamp, wanted to send a clear message that if you're on Team Trump, if you're one of these America First types, it's not going to be a good decision for you long term career wise. This will kill your career. And so don't even think about it. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm proud that I didn't, uh, you know, listen to those folks. I didn't necessarily, you know, get that advice from anyone. But uh, even if I had, you need people who are going to be bold enough to say, you know what, forget my career. I'm, I'm willing to take this on uh, because this is uh, this is a worthy objective that we need to pursue. Yeah. So like anecdotally, I <laughs> 
your point is is 100 accurate i think about these different profiles uh you know of people who apply for different kinds of administrations uh because we're in the business of personnel i keep a, a pretty close eye on the transitions section of politico playbook and which is like i like to wipe my butt with the rest of the time but like <laughs> but for that piece you know it's 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 good for us to know where people are where they're going and that sort of thing you never see people, you know, working for, you know, good conservative members who are actually working on, uh, you know, substantive policy, uh, you know, and, and differences that they have with the neoliberal establishment. You never see those kinds of people going to be the ones to lobby for Uber or to work mm -hmm. for Goldman Sachs yeah. or to, you know work for the 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 newest you know the government affairs division of like the newest tech startup or yeah. whatever um it is always the exact kind of people that you mentioned you know mm -hmm. the people who are working for the the microcosm of who these you know presidents are which is their counterparts in congress yeah. you know the do nothing you know 70 year old fogies that you've never heard of uh, it's, it's, it's those people who are kind of like wasting their time away every week, you know, putting in their solid mm -hmm. 25, 30 hours and then, and then, you know, getting some big cushy lobbying gig where they'll probably work less. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a reason why rush hour in this town starts at like two 30, yeah. you know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's, it's very much a real thing. Um, well, I don't really what, have a question. I'm no, just, it's, you're it's, making me mad. It's, so. it's a great point. I, I think. It really opened my eyes. Again, I go back to you You assume that a lot of the Republicans, whether they're in elected office or the staffers, are on your team and that they're fighting for these same ideas that you hold. And the answer is, you know, almost uniformly, that's not true. These people, I don't know why they exist. I don't know why they're in politics. Maybe once upon a time they saw a movie and they were like, hey, this looks really exciting. Their or wife they, thinks Capitol Hill is pretty. Yeah, exactly. Or, you know, they have like one policy area that maybe they're passionate about. Um, but a lot of these people, I don't think they could really describe to you why they're in politics at all or why they're here. We need more people who come in and say, you know, look, something is really wrong with the system. I'm here to change it. And over time, yeah, DC can change you. I think you may have a lot of those people that came in with those ideals and then changed over time. But, uh, you know, like waves crashing against, you know, um, you know, a, a seawall, uh, we need to just keep bringing people up here and taking shots at the system one after another, because it's not going to happen in just one fell swoop. I, I go back to my comment about Trump. He was an initial shot at that system. We need to keep coming in waves. I will say the one exception to your point um, about who gets to go to these these fancy jobs after the hill is that I know for a fact a couple of years ago when there started to be scrutiny against big tech on uh, Capitol Hill, uh, a lot of the big tech companies hired specifically out of Freedom Caucus offices saying we're going to hire these principled libertarian conservatives to tell everyone why it's not principled and conservative to do anything about these tech oligarchs. And um, there was a lot of surprisingly interesting offices. I mean, it was Paul Ryan, but it was also, I mean, mm -hmm. fine, I'll say it, Ted Cruz and Rand Paul staffers that yeah. went to go work for Facebook and Twitter. The one interesting instance of this that I saw recently, uh, and I don't really know what to make of it, and I don't know, you know, even though I'm from Minnesota, I don't remember what this person's name is, but um, Klobuchar has been one of the Democrats has been really big on, you know, big tech stuff, which is surprising because mm -hmm. she's like, the most milk toast, like 
I've spent time with her. She's god awful. <laughs> <laughs> I hope she. I hope she doesn't hear that clip. She's gonna come after me. But uh, Minnesota is a small place. You'll understand. Uh, but uh, the staffer that was that was leading her big tech charge was recently hired by I. I can't remember if it was Google or Facebook, but it was one of them. Like the person responsible for you know this kind of breaking up big tech initiative for one of the senators wanting to take this on the most yeah she got hired away to work for one of those companies mm -hmm. i mean you you're making a cool two million dollars a year or something. yeah you yeah. you you truly have to start wondering i mean i i hear a lot of optimistic stories you know about oh republicans and democrats can like work on mm. x y and z and, and I really want to believe those. I would really like to believe that that political realignment is happening. And I think among actual elected representatives, it maybe is. Among staff, it's not. Yeah. It's, it's not happening. People yeah. are still being won over by fancy titles and by big paychecks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And I, I do think there is also something broken um, in the conservative mindset with a lot of these members that you mentioned, especially with their staffers, which is they, they view the conservative project as their entire goal is to keep the price of matches and gasoline low for the arsonists who are burning down our country. <laughs> um, that's, gonna, that's, that's, that's a like, great line. <laughs> we're going to, we're going to post on Twitter, a picture of you and that quote. Like that's just, it's going to be a tweet. No, it's, it's true though, because, you know, they view things entirely through an economic lens. And I think they completely miss the point that, you know, economics and culture issues cannot be separated one from another. They are intimately linked together. It goes back to your comment about politics and culture, uh, which one's upstream, downstream. Uh, if you don't view uh, the nation overall and all these issues as interlinked, I think you're missing the point. It's basically like, you know, you're trying to see with, with only one eye or really you're, you're kind of blinding yourself. Um, these issues are linked. We must view them as such. And, uh, we must understand that, um, it's, it's not enough just to say that, Hey, we're, we've been successful, uh, because GDP has grown. GDP mm -hmm. has grown exponentially um, over the past, you know, 20, 30 years. And at that same time, uh, marriage rates are down. Our birth rates are hitting all time lows. Uh, kids are struggling in school with basic concepts that previously they had mastered and that we were leading the world in. So if you only look at GDP as the indicator of the health of a nation, you're missing the point entirely. And that's how the G GOP has really viewed this country. And their mission is to just increase GDP. Yeah, I know we got to, you know, get you out of here in a minute. But just the one thing, you've made so many great points. And I really just want to highlight that about like the line go up or GDP go burr, or, you know, <laughs> insert your Twitter meme here. Uh, I, I think actually one of the funny things about that and, 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 and the fun you see a lot of these young Zoomers having online with these with these kind of I mean, Sarab's actually probably the person I'm thinking of the most. Uh, but <laughs> the interesting thing about that is it is kind of like a middle finger to the system, right? It's 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 a whole generation of young people. And I think this is true on the right and left. We, we've been told, yep, when this when this line goes up, everyone's good. Mm -hmm. And like I'm married, my wife and I are looking to buy a house right now. And it's like it is the line going up is not helping yeah. me, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not helping most people. Um, and so I get really encouraged. Interestingly, when people are really black pilled about the GDP mm -hmm. and, and, and how that whole system works, because it's everyone kind of waking up to the fact that like, man, this, this whole thing is literally made up. Yeah. Like it's a, it's a, it's, you know, the GDP 
line going up means that we're all prosperous. Like it's literally the opposite. Yeah. So yeah. anyway, sorry. Great point. Yeah. Love it. Yeah, uh, no, it's it's very true. And uh, the more that they tell you that everything is awesome, uh, it's almost like that. Uh, what is that Lego movie? Yes. You know, everything yeah. is awesome. That movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the media spouts it. They tell you that uh, things are going well in the country, but the experience is so different, different um, than what they tell you it is. And that really leads to, as you mentioned earlier, that cognitive dissonance that it's just jarring. Um, when people tell you that everything is great in America, but don't believe your lying eyes when your experience is, is so different than that. Yeah. Um, the last thing that I want to touch on is, uh, you know, we were talking about this institutional knowledge on Capitol Hill and the presidential administration. I think one of the most practical upshots for how the right suffered because it didn't have a motivated but also competent core of personnel was what happened in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. Just walk us through what you saw down there in Georgia with one of the, you know, you're you're an excellent lawyer yourself. Cleta Mitchell is legendary. We 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 adore her. I mean, how how are we so unprepared for the lawfare that that the left brought? <clears throat> So that question specifically is hard to answer because I was working in the administration. We were focused on our task, you know, implementing the America First agenda. So I assumed incorrectly that the campaign really had this uh, planned out and that in the different swing states, uh, we would have teams in place that were ready to fight this. Uh, that was obviously a, a false, uh, you know, belief. Um, but I, th I think it's also, uh, you know, the point that I made earlier about we assume that Republicans are fighting for us. When we vote in a Republican majority, I think, you know, people are, are the, the wool is, you know, pulled off from their eyes. Uh, they, they no longer view that as, as just enough. You need to make sure you get the right Republicans. But um, post-November 3rd, I'll just kind of walk you through my experience with that. Um, we were all a bit in a daze. I had flown back home to Georgia. I voted in person down there, uh, stayed up all night, uh, watched that giant vote jump uh, at about 3 a.m. You know, I just had that that weird feeling in the pit of my stomach. The forbidden chart. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, I came back to D.C. and everyone was just a, in a stupor. We didn't quite know what was going on. There were news reports, you know, what happened. And uh, there was a girl in my agency and she said, uh, you know, the, the most valuable thing you can do right now for this administration is to go back home to Georgia and and just help out in whatever way you can. So I flew back home uh, to Georgia and I showed up at Trump HQ down uh, down in Buckhead and it was a complete uh, zoo. It was chaos. They were completely unprepared for this. Um, the lawyers that were in place, we find out later, are the secretary of state's lawyers. So Brad Raffensperger's lawyers. And we're talking about suing the secretary of state and the governor and the person who is supposed to, you know, lead this charge is the same lawyer for the secretary of state and the governor just sitting there quietly. Uh, it was weird. We didn't know that initially. We would ask him questions about, hey, you know, this particular law or is that legal? What happened there? And you have to it was like talking to, uh, you know, was it like Zohar or Zohan, the fortune teller. You had to ask a very specific question yeah. to get the kind of response that you wanted. Um and the whole GOP apparatus behind closed doors down in Georgia, these establishment figures, um, wanted to fundraise off of election integrity 
and not do anything about it. And that was really uh, opened my eyes uh, to the Georgia swamp, the Georgia establishment that we have down there, which is this mindset of Republicans that, hey, we issued the press release. What more do you want from us? And it's like, we want you to actually fight. We want you to actually get involved, roll up your sleeve, do the hard work. Um, Cleto was down there. Uh, I was down there and we formed up uh, the Trump legal team when it was apparent that these people who were being paid by the campaign to do what we thought they were there to do, which is run the data analysis, craft the legal arguments, write up the complaints, send the letters, you know, of demand over to the secretary of state and the governor. They weren't doing it. They had no interest in doing it. I don't know whether they were issued a stand down order or what, but Cleta and I, um, you know, a guy named Alex Kaufman, Kurt Hilbert, Chris Gardner, we split off and formed the official Trump legal team down in Georgia. And we did all of that work as a bunch of volunteers. And I ran all of the data analysis for the president's lawsuit down in the state. Um, there are countless issues with the data that they relied upon to certify the election in Georgia. 18,000 plus people registered at vacant lots, uh, close to 5,000 people who were not on the state's voter registration list, uh, but who cast ballots in that election, almost 1,000 people who were illegally registered at P.O. boxes, over 40,000 people who had moved out of state and filed a national change of address to a different state who cast ballots back in Georgia, an absentee ballot rate, uh, rejection rate that dropped from a historical average of around 3% down to 0.3%, despite a six-fold increase in the number of absentee ballots from about 200,000 to 1.3 million. Um, And a lot of these things, we just wanted answers. And we expected the Republican Secretary of State, the Republican Governor, the Republican Lieutenant Governor, the Republican Attorney General. Georgia is a full red state at the statewide constitutional officer level. They were either stonewalling us or actively working against us, basically saying these people are a bunch of crazy nut jobs. And it's like, no, we are bringing you tangible, hard evidence here. And all we're asking you to do is to investigate, which is to say, do your job. And they fought against us at every step of the way. We had to file our lawsuit. And were it not for the fact that the judicial system in Georgia is extremely corrupt and we didn't get a judge appointed for over a month, they basically ran the clock out on us. We never got our day in court down in Georgia. So the people that say in the media, you know, this has been debunked, 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 it's bogus. It's BS, complete BS. Uh, But with the people uh, who aren't really willing to uh, take the time to actually dig into these issues and understand what happened, that's enough for them. It's been debunked. You know, you're a bunch of uh, nut jobs. Um, But that was really the catalyst for why I got in this race. Initial discussions were around potentially running for secretary of state just because I was so deep in the election uh, challenge. I was talking with Cleta uh, extensively about that. And then Jody uh, Heiss obviously decided to run in that race and got the president's endorsement. And uh, it opened up his congressional seat uh, basically in my backyard. Um, so it's it's a continuation of that, that war on you know, the, the people who are trying to destroy this country. Um, this is how I can best serve. I served in the Trump bad men. I was on that election integrity team. And it really showed to me that the people we have in office right now with an R next to their name, they're not getting it done. Not only because they're, you know, not interested in doing it, they're also just incompetent. We need better people in office. And that's why I'm running for Congress. Couldn't have wrapped it up better myself. <laughs> Patrick, where can people find more information about you and what you're up to? Yeah, so uh, you can follow me on Twitter, Patrick J. Witt. Uh, you are a new tweeter. <laughs> I, I am a relatively new tweeter. Yeah, it's uh, 
it's yeah. I, <laughs> I don't know what to say about that. Yeah. I, uh, you know, had for Welcome a long time had, 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 had avoided that and uh, with good reason, I think. But, yeah. you know, to get your message out, uh, it's it's critical that people understand where you are on these issues and you can react, react to things in real time. Um, and then my website, PatrickWitt.com, PatrickWitt.com. Wonderful. Um, he's a great follow on Twitter and uh, definitely one of the more interesting people getting involved in civic life these days. Patrick, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much, guys. Thank you. Today we're going to do some self-promotion, fellas. Um, I have an that's, article. That's not that's not different from what we do. We're literally on a podcast. Right now. <laughs> we do that every day. Yeah, noted podcasters, Nixel. Ah, I hate that. I <laughs> yeah, hate that exactly. As a title. Yeah, podcaster Americans here. Um, I had a piece out in print in uh, the American Spectator that I wanted to talk a little bit about today uh, as we close out the episode. It goes to one of the concepts that I've spent a lot of time thinking about on the right um, and uh, something that I've, I've talked about in speeches, speaking to especially socially conservative groups um, over the past couple of years, namely that uh, we ghettoize social conservatives on the American right. Um, th- there's this idea in professional Washington that, uh, quote unquote, serious people do uh, economics and foreign policy. And those those, quote unquote, social issues, they're for those conservatives and those Christians. And that dynamic is one of the most pernicious forces on the right and in the broader policymaking environment in D.C., because it takes the people inside of whom not only the imprimatur of the bases ratification exists, the base of the Republican Party is social conservatives, but also the people who, who in these elite circles have the deepest conservative instincts about what society should look like and what American civilization should be, and it cordons them off into a very narrow set of issues, religious liberty and abortion. And it lets degenerates, lobbyists, uh, and people who are bloodthirsty for endless war determine everything else. And so in this piece that I wrote for the American Spectator, um, I title it, Social Conservatives Have Something to Say on Every Issue. I just talk about how broken this dynamic is where, where social conservatives are ghettoized in this way. You know, touch on a little bit of, of Patrick Buchanan's speech in 1992 at the Republican National Convention where he talks about the culture war. And, and I want to read this quote from him. My friends, these people are our people. They don't read Adam Smith or Edmund Burke, but they come from the same schoolyards and the same playgrounds and towns as we come from. They share our beliefs and convictions, our hopes and our dreams. They are conservatives of the heart. Um, their interests are not just social. They are also economic. And in that speech later, uh, Mr. Buchanan talked about how uh you know, there were hardy men at the at the the steel mill that that were afraid of losing their jobs to NAFTA. That there was a legal secretary who was worried um, that she wasn't going to be able to put food on the table. Um, the interests of 
social conservatives and what social conservatives have to bring to the policy conversation go far beyond the narrow constraints of quote-unquote cultural issues. They have something to say about immigration. They have something to say about trade. They have something to say about corporate power. They have something to say about the cultural forces that are dominating in American life. They have something to say about welfare. They have something to say about all of these things. And we need to return power in the Republican Party to these people that are ultimately um, the base that we, you know, as conservatives exist to serve. Um, the socially liberal, fiscally conservative person is an alien to the actual electorate. They're a vanishingly small percentage of it, 2 to 3%. They have an enormous amount of influence here in the policymaking environment in Washington, D.C. And so, um, you know, highly recommend you check out the piece. Um, uh, it's it's a concept that I've, I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and I think that it can form the basis of a lot of the instincts that undergird some of the ideas we talk about here at American Moment. Not all of them. I mean, uh, I think that it takes a little bit of, you know, uh, leg room to talk about how innovation policy needs to be a socially conservative issue. But, but I think you can get there. It would just be a little bit strained. But I think that the majority and a pretty serious majority of the policymaking conversation that we have on the right needs to center the voices of social conservatives. Um, because at the end of the day, they are the people who are the guardians of the culture that we uh, on the right in D.C. love to say that we're defending the American way of life, as it were. So anyway, I cited that speech to someone the other day and they, they had the audacity to tell me that that was the speech that made gay people not feel welcome in the Republican Party. <laughs> I love politics. Yeah. And they, were like, and they were like, this is why we need log cabin Republicans to like fight back against this stuff. Anyway, just just a ridiculous antidote from like how dumb people are in D.C. Um I, uh, uh, the, you know, the interesting thing about Sarab's article, which I must admit I have only skimmed, uh, I listen to you talk enough, you know, to <laughs> know the general gist of where you're going with stuff. But, um, I think the interesting thing about this, and we kind of talked about it on the episode today is that, uh, even on the issues that we've been told that are, you know, socially and morally acceptable to focus on, uh, you know, Sarab laid out, uh, you know, abortion, um, as one, and then like freedom of religion, you know, uh, those are kind of the things that, that, that we're allowed to talk about. Uh, we don't even do a good job of, you know, protecting freedom of religion, but also like, you know, fighting to, uh, you know, appeal the right to an abortion. I mean, we, We'll find out tomorrow. Yeah, I swear. well, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe I'll maybe I'll look like a fool uh, when this episode yeah. comes out. In which case, Jake can just cut this part out. But uh, yeah, any bets on what's happening in Dobbs? No, no, no bets at all. I don't want to. I don't want to. I'm going to give my to... black pill bet, which is that conservatives will not be the ones who win. Okay. Yeah. I'm just praying about it. Yeah. Like that's that's my. I'm just praying about it. Yeah. I I don't know. Um. But anyway, on, on on those issues that we're allowed to talk about, we haven't even done a good job. Um, you know, one of the examples of, you know, people on the right in the social space who are actually, you know, working on both the things that are allowed and the things that aren't allowed is, uh, you know, we had Terry Schilling on our last episode and we've interviewed him in another episode previously uh, who's on our board. I mean, when I think about people who are 
really like fighting the culture war and not just on the socially acceptable stuff. Um, APP uh, and, and, and Terry are at the top of my, and I have to give a shout out to John Schweppe. Otherwise he'll DM me and be like, why didn't you mention me? I, you know, I fight on this stuff too. So John, you're included. Uh, but aside from those two, first time in his life and, (laughs) and, uh, and, and, and their organization, I mean, there is a real vacuum, I think right now for conservatives who really, you know, want to step up to the plate and actually do something, you know, and, and I'm not talking about hit a grand slam, you know, uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. Roe v. Wade won't be repealed in a day. But I mean, just start getting on base, hitting singles. You know, I think I think there's really a a space for conservatives who are passionate about this stuff to kind of step in, uh, take a risk to your reputation, and and really start fighting on a lot of these. Um, so, are you looking at your phone? No, I'm really? about to pull up the piece. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, I hear you talking. Up. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Anyway, all, all, all that to say, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. Uh, like Sarab was saying in the intro, American Moment slash AmericanMoment.org slash join. Uh, if you want to meet with Sarab to talk about how you can get involved, uh, you know, on on social issues, that's going to be your best avenue for doing it. Yeah. Uh, the the last line of the piece that I'll just read out and we'll close is uh, policymakers want social conservatives to focus on, quote unquote, social issues because they know that if social conservatives were allowed to pay attention to the rest, they would arrive at very different answers, answers uncomfortable to the oligarchs who dominate American life. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more.